Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Well, good evening, gang. How are we doing? I feel like we're in the classroom and the teacher is like, look, all of you scoot forward. No, seriously, scoot forward. Okay, you're not going to scoot forward. We're just going to remove all the chairs and you're going to have to be, I feel a little bit like that. We've got an event tomorrow, by the way, Lydia and Pearl, which is why there's like only half the chairs in here. Uh, so we're, we're not punishing you for not moving forward enough, uh, if that's the case. So uh, my name is Mike Sladen. I'm one of the teaching pastors here on staff, if I haven't met you yet. And I just got back uh, from Turkey, Greece, and Italy. Uh, so we just led a study tour over there with a group of individuals uh, from our church and a few outside of it, kind of walking the land of the Bible, which was absolutely amazing. Uh, if you haven't been on one of those trips, I highly recommend it. Shameless plug, we rotate between that trip and then an Israel trip uh, every year. So if you haven't had the opportunity to get on one of those, boy, your Bible comes to life in just a whole different way. Uh, but as I was preparing, you know, part of my job as I'm over there is we're teaching on sites, right? So you're learning about Ephesus as you're standing, you know, in the, the theater at Ephesus or whatever. So I'm studying all these sites. And I'm looking through the history. It's like, okay, there's this city and that got demolished by an earthquake in 17 AD. Okay. And then there's this other city and that got demolished by an earthquake in 26 AD. And then there's this, and there's like this string of earthquakes there. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Well, I didn't really think about that, like in terms of like those fault lines are still there and those earthquakes still happen. And I just realized that I went to like the only place in the world that maybe competes with the San Andreas Fault. Uh, everywhere in Turkey is built on their huge fault line, right? So second night, go to bed, I'm sleeping. And all of a sudden at three in the morning, like my bed's shaking. And like one of those, like if your spouse is just like rolling over hard in the night, you'd be like, okay. And then I realized like my spouse isn't here. I'm in bed by myself. And I'm like, this is really strange. And I'm from Texas. So I'm used to like tornadoes and thunderstorms and you can see those coming. We have sirens that alert you and like news channels that say, you know, go hide in your bathroom or whatever. Well, all of a sudden, like I'm in a full on panic, right? I'm out of bed and I'm like, okay, what's gonna happen? I'm in a foreign country. I'm on the fifth floor of this hotel. Power's gonna go out, okay, I need my flashlight. So I run and get my flashlight, and I'm like, okay, I probably need water, because you can only survive like 24 hours without water, so I got my water bottle, and I'm like, I probably need food, because I get cranky if I don't have food, so I need to get food. So I'm like totally prepared, and then it calms down, of course, after like 30 seconds, and it's over. And in hindsight, it was like a 4.0, you know, earthquake that was miles away from us, and we were just kind of feeling like some very gentle aftershocks. But in the midst of it, I'm in a full-on panic about this, right? So I try to go back to bed, forget about it. Three in the morning, I'm up for the rest of the morning. So we go downstairs for breakfast that morning and we're talking about it. And, I, and I'm talking to a couple like local Californians that had been through all the earthquakes. So I'm like, gosh, guys, did you feel the earthquake last night? They're like, yeah. Like we sat up in bed, felt it, and then went right back to sleep. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I, and I realized that in the midst of this, there, there's something kind of powerful about that. There's, there's one thing to have calm after the fact, right? Uh, after it was all said and done and I finally got the breakfast, I was like, okay, it wasn't that big a deal. But it's another thing to have calm in the midst of it. It's another thing to have that perspective while it's going on to say, I've been here before, everything's gonna be fine. Mike, you're not gonna die. Like, relax, go back to sleep. My buddies had that perspective. I, uh, unfortunately, did not. And the text that we're gonna look at tonight is David 
in the midst of the earthquake. He is in the eye of the hurricane, so to speak. I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 56. And I want to show you a text that's all about this idea of suffering and difficulty and how as believers we handle these adverse conditions in our life. As, as I kind of look around the landscape of our church right now, uh, I get the impression that maybe uh, in this season, more so than maybe others that we've been through, that there's a, a degree of suffering and difficulty that it's happening amongst our people, uh, maybe that's higher than normal. Maybe because those are just impacting my world that I know so many that are going through things that are so incredibly difficult. Uh, but I wonder that if in your world that may be true as well. And I think David shows us a pretty amazing pattern of how we are to maybe respond to that. And it just gives us some ideas. So Psalm chapter 56, we're going to look at this entire psalm tonight. And David begins with these words. He says, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for there are many who fight proudly against me. You get the impression from, from David's words that he's obviously in a very difficult spot. He's talking about a physical enemy that is oppressing him, that is chasing him. His foes have trampled him all day long, and they are fighting proudly against him, doggedly pursuing him, maybe how we would describe it. Well, the beauty of this psalm is that we actually know when it's written in the life of David. Uh, it's a beautiful kind of picture of where he's at in the midst of life. If you know anything about David's life, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he's anointed king. There's a current guy on the throne by the name of Saul, but God says, I'm going after a man, a man after my own heart, that will be different than the current king that's on the throne. His name is David, and he comes uh, through the means of a guy by the name of Samuel, the prophet who anoints David, and says, one day you are ultimately going to be king. The following chapter after that is one of the most famous chapters we have in our whole Bible. It's David fighting Goliath. It's this young man. He steps up to the battle lines. He does what King Saul will not do. He defeats this, this giant in his day, this, this foe that, that no one else would stand, stand up to. And as a result, this young man now realizes tremendous success in prosperity by all around them. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 5, it says, So David wherever he went, wherever Saul sent him after this fact as he kind of became part of Saul's army, to see that he prospered. And Saul sent him, uh, set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, also in sight of all of Saul's servants. So David gets elevated within the kingdom. He has this new incredible position under Saul. And he has so much success in what he was doing as a, as a, as a warrior for Saul. It says in 1 Samuel 18 that the women sang as they played. Saul has slain his thousands in David his ten thousands his name in a sense is on the front of the Fresno Bee he is he is big news in fact he's outshining even Saul and if you know anything about Saul he's, he's simply not going to stand for that and this issue of, of jealousy begins to to come into Saul's heart and Saul in this moment really turns on David in fact three different times tries to take David's life twice uh, by throwing a spear at his body and once by kind of feeding him to the Philistines hoping that they would do it for him in the midst of this, this glorious season where David is just being a faithful servant of the king, he realizes it's no longer safe to be here, uh, and he has to flee his home. Uh, and it's the beginning of a process now that God is taking him through, a process that will involve tremendous difficulty and suffering. And it's not one that lasts weeks or months, but years 
for David as he finds himself in this season. And it's a season really of stripping for David. He removes, God does, everything from David's life that he was tempted to lean on aside from God. Not necessarily bad things or evil things, but things that he found uh, uh, shelter in aside from from God. He, he, He loses his position in Saul's kingdom. He loses his wife and his home as he has to flee from that place. The prophet Samuel, his mentor, uh, one of his closest confidants, he no longer sees him. His best friend Jonathan uh, is is now no longer accessible to him. And this entire time, while David is on the run from Saul, Saul is chasing after him with all of his men. Saul has redirected his efforts in the kingdom not to, to lead his kingdom, but to focus on this threat, this young man that is after his job as, as Saul would see it. And as he is in this process, the last thing that David loses is his dignity and his pride. He is so fearful of his life, so unsure of where he should go. The text says that David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Gath is the, the, the city that Goliath is from. David literally flees to his enemy to find safety from Saul. He shows up in town thinking that Saul will never come to this place, so he he seeks shelter in the last possible place. But the problem is it says the servants, as they see uh, David come in, they say, wait, isn't that David? Isn't that the one that they sang and and danced about and said Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? So hoping to come in undiscovered, David walks into this place and as sure as he walks in, they'll say, that's David. We know that guy. He is our arch enemy. He defeated Goliath. He realizes in that moment his cover is blown and he goes to his last resort. This is that David in 1 Samuel 21 took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish king of Gath So he disguised his sanity before them. He acted insanely in their hands. And he scribbled on the doors of the gate and let saliva run down his beard. He feigns insanity in this moment as if he was some type of lunatic or a madman thinking that that would convince them not to to come after David. Maybe convince them that that actually isn't him. And in fact, one of the funnier moments of your Bible, Achish, the king says, do I lack madmen in my kingdom that I need another dude like this? Like, get him out of here. Uh, But I want you to notice in the midst of this, to not let the, the gravity of this moment be lost on you. David is living in an enemy land. Achish, king of Gath, is, is, is suspicious at the very least as to who David is. Saul is on the hunt from him from the other side. In his difficulty in, in, that he is going through, David is doing things and thinking things in this moment that maybe he never thought possible. Feigning insanity. He's alone. He is stressed. He is fearful. He has nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, no family, no friends in this season to support him. In fact, David writes this in the season of his life. He says, but truly as the Lord lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. The situation that I am in right now, I am literally a half step away from death. It is so significant. He says in the Psalm, David pens this, look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one who cares for my soul. You can begin to understand the distress that David is under. And again, this is a long season of aloneness, of fleeing from your enemies, fleeing from the guy that you served faithfully uh, for a season in your life who's now turned on you. And David is feeling an anguish in his soul that he, he simply doesn't know what to do with. And it's in this moment 
as he is fleeing from Saul, is continuing to be pursued by him, is Achish king of Gath, is wondering, is this or is this not David, that he pens the words that we just wrote. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me, fighting all day long he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. There are many who fight proudly against me. In fact, if you look at verses five and six of Psalm 56, he expands on actually what's happening in this situation. He says, all day long, they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like to be in a situation where you are fearful of, are you even gonna live through the day? Are you even gonna make it uh, to tomorrow? Will you see another sunrise? Whether that's death coming from Achish or death coming from Saul or one of these individuals, David is at a level of stress that, that words simply can't put into the full aspect of where he is. Literally, David is between a rock and a hard place and through no fault of his own. This is not a self-inflicted gunshot wound. David didn't do stupid. He didn't cause this, so to speak, because of his sin. He has simply been a faithful steward of what God has asked him to do, and now he finds himself in an impossible situation. He is suffering immensely in this season. So the question that I wanna ask us and maybe make some observations as we walk through this text, what do we do in seasons of like, life like this? Uh, when these type of situations hit our lives, when we find ourselves in places of difficulty, not necessarily because of the things that we have caused in our own world, that, though sometimes that is why we suffer, but just because that is what God is choosing to, to walk us through for whatever reason. How do we respond in these seasons of suffering? What do we do when we get here? And if I'm honest with you guys, um, this text may be more for me than it even is for you. I'm in the midst of going through regen right now, and one of the things that God is uncovering in me is that there's a pretty significant distance between my head and my heart. Oftentimes, I can say, I believe this to be true about God. I can use big theological terms and say that he is sovereign and omniscient and he's all-knowing and he's all of these things in my head and in my Bible, but when life hits the fan and I have to believe those things and walk those things out, I have a much more difficult time of saying, okay, Lord, I trust you. I can actually translate what I say I believe about you in this ethereal realm into my life and walk this out in trust. And instead, I choose to, to panic. I get, I get worried. I get um, anxious about my thoughts. I, I try to control situations around me so that I can mitigate maybe damage or whatever's happening around me. And God is literally in the process as we speak of dealing with this issue in me. So to help me understand, Mike, it's not enough just to simply believe here. You need to believe here. So I, I just want to walk us through some things that I see in David. I want to give you six things. This isn't a, a list. This isn't like a step-by-step -step process. If you do these things, you're going to magically find yourself on the other side of suffering. That, that's not at all what this is. In fact, when we see this psalm conclude in terms of, of what's happening, nothing will have changed. David is in the same situation. God has not delivered him. He has not brought him out of this situation. He is walking with him through it, but he doesn't change the things around him. These are simply some observations that I, I see David doing in a way that I think maybe if we will emulate that and think through um, how God is using him in this situation that we may find some solace in as well. 
I want you to notice, and it's tucked really away in verses one and two, and it's, it's a bit obvious, but I want you to notice for the first thing, that David turns to God. Uh, in the midst of having nothing else around him, nobody else to turn to, he turns to, to the Lord, and that's a consistent pattern in David's life. It's not evil for him to turn to Samuel or to reach out to, to friends or companions. It's not wrong for us to, uh, to, to go to our life group leader or, or whoever that may be to say, hey, I'm struggling, but there are times in our life where, where God, for some reason, sometimes removes those crutches from our lives and says, I, I'm not gonna allow you to, to deal with this outside of the circle, Mike, it's you and me, and we're gonna walk this road together, and David understands that. He turns to the Lord. In fact, in Psalm verse chapter 34, in this exact same moment um, when David pens the same story, he writes another psalm in the same time period. He says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. David writes those words as he is going through this exact moment. He says in Psalm 34, verse 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David is reminding himself of that truth, that while, God, I am walking through this suffering and walking through difficulty, and you feel far away from me, you are in fact near. You are here. You are with me in the midst of this. And David writes that in the midst of the greatest difficulty he has had in his life up to this point. God is near me, and he will not cast me away. And I think it's important for us in seasons like this that we need to remember that, that there's a temptation for us to run to all kinds of different things aside from God, uh, but he is near in the midst of that. Good things that we could run to, and sometimes bad things, idols of escape or things that we want to check out with or uh, just numb out in, in life that, that aren't healthy or good. Both of those things can ultimately be damaging. Um, what David goes on to say in the situation is, is powerful. I want you to look at verse 3. He says, not only is, is God here with me, he says in verse three, I'm honest about what, what's actually happening within me. He says, when I am afraid. I want you to notice how David feels in this moment, and this is the second thing. David acknowledges he's at the end of his rope. I am afraid, I feel fear. I trust God, but in the midst of this situation, I am overwhelmed by what's happening in me. This is a natural response to situations like this. David is losing the battle. He calls a spade a spade. And again, in Psalm 142, in the same season, while hiding in a cave, David says, my spirit was overwhelmed within me. Literally, I am languishing in this, in this season. And we've all, in a sense, been there. Whether you're going through suffering that's on a level one, or like some of my friends that I'm walking with right now that are at a level 11, and the, the suffering and the difficulty that they're going through is just immense and beyond imagination. We understand what it's like to be here, where, where life is just simply overwhelming. The hamster wheel just feels like too much and that we simply cannot keep up with it. And David is being honest with God about what's going on in him. He's processing, he's lamenting, he's saying, God, this is how I feel in this moment. And if we're honest, sometimes in, in, a, in a hope maybe to to encourage people or point them to the Lord, we say, hey, listen, you shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't feel angst or you shouldn't feel worry. If you trusted God, you wouldn't feel those things. Well, that doesn't at all seem like what David is doing or what he's truly feeling. And I want you to listen to Mark's description of Jesus in the garden when he is hours away from his death and see if, if Jesus in his humanity didn't feel and experience the exact same thing. Mark chapter 14 records this for us. They came to the place named Gethsemane, 
And he said, Jesus said here to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Jesus says to his friends in this morning, uh, in, in this moment, my soul is very distressed. The word literally means struck with terror. Jesus felt in his humanity an overwhelming anguish over his death through crucifixion that he knew was coming. Now let me just state the obvious. Jesus never sinned. So what he is feeling right now in this moment in his humanity is not sin. He trusts God fully as we know, but he is feeling worry. He is feeling overwhelmed. He's not some robot in, in his uh, 100% God that is just simply going to the cross and going through the motions. The human side of Christ felt real fear, real anguish as we do even in that moment. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Isaiah chapter 53 pens these words long before Jesus came to this earth that are prediction of how he would feel in this moment. Isaiah says he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus knew what it was to feel fear, to feel distress in his soul as God was walking him through a very difficult situation. So if that is true, that we can in in, in our lives feel that, and that feeling, that, that sense of um, anxiety or depression or whatever it may be isn't necessarily sin, uh, I, I think that's encouraging to us because Jesus models that for us, and David does the same. But I want you to notice, David's emotions don't rule over him. They don't control him. They actually lead him to the Lord. And David does something beautiful in the midst of feeling this fear. Look at the end here of verse 3. David says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. He repeats this idea way down in verse 11. Look at it with me. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And this brings us to our third point. David trusts God in the midst of his fear. David chooses not to submit to the to the fear that he feels. In the midst of this, he says, I'm simply gonna trust God. And I want you to notice in the midst of this, fear doesn't magically go away. It doesn't just disappear. The fear isn't gone when David says, listen, God, I'm gonna trust you. I'm choosing to do that. So then trust, in a sense, is not the absence of fear. Trust is, is, is there, but fear is actually required in order to move David to this place. If he didn't have fear, he wouldn't need trust. If he didn't have this sense of, Lord, I need you in this moment, and I'm fearful of what's happening around me, then David isn't ever going to take a step towards the Lord. So in a sense, this fear that David is feeling is a gift that God gives him to move him to trust the Lord, to acknowledge this is what's going on, but I'm not going to allow this feeling to overwhelm me. I'm actually going to move toward you in that process. David is choosing in the midst of that fear to say that there's something greater out there, there's something bigger that's happening in my life that, that is, is more significant in, than, than even this fear that he's currently feeling. Uh, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to go skydiving, right? And it was a great idea until I got in the plane and I realized 
this was dumb. Um, I'm going to jump out of a perfectly good airplane, right? And I remember this feeling of, of packing the parachute with this guy or at least watching him do it and getting in the plane. And then we get up to like 10,000 feet and they open that door. And in that moment, I just went like flush white. I am panicked, scared out of my mind. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And fear literally gripped me. And that guy's kind of pointing and saying, we're going to walk out on that wing. And we did that. And I realized in this moment, I am, I am terrified of doing what I had committed to do, but I was, I was all kinds of fearful. But in that moment, what I was saying is, I think there's something greater than my fear called a parachute. Uh, and it, if it does its job, we're all, we're all going to end okay, not like a pancake on the ground, right? So my fear actually pushed me to trust. My fear didn't go away. I just had to point my fear in maybe a different direction. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what's happening with David. It's the fear that drives him to the Lord. It is a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. It's a beautiful picture of how God is allowing David to handle this. A giving over of, of what we're feeling to God in that moment, confronting fear with truth. And David says in that, what can man do to me? God, you're so much bigger than this. This, this thing that I feel is insignificant compared to who you are. And I want you to notice, by the way, we, we won't cover all of them, but David writes at least eight psalms in this season in his life more than any other that I'm aware of uh, that he writes during this time. Why would David continually go back to this place and write and write and write again as we're reading like his quiet times before the Lord? This choice to trust God wasn't a one-time decision that he made and said, great, it's never gonna be a problem again. No, he woke up the next day, he felt fear, he felt those reservations, he felt the, the enemy continuing to press in on him, and he says, Lord, no, I'm gonna choose to trust you in this moment. I am not gonna be dominated by my emotions. I'm gonna choose in this moment to trust you again. And if I have to do that again in 30 minutes or three days, whatever it may be, David continues to go back to the Lord. And it's the same for us in so many ways. When our circumstances don't change, when God is allowing us to walk through the situation with him as he is near to us, there's a part of us that has to daily choose to trust God in the midst of what we are walking through. And the question remains for us, how can David have this kind of confidence? How does he know who God is and that God is faithful and will be um, a lighthouse in the midst of his darkest hour? I want you to look at verse four. David says, in God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? His trust comes from God's revealed truth. And that's the fourth thing. It's God's word that gives David the confidence to trust him. In fact, this is gonna become a, a mantra, so to speak, in this psalm. If you look down at verse 10, he repeats this and kind of enlarges this idea. In God, whose word I praise in the Lord, whose word I praise. This is repeated twice here in verse 10 and once even before it in verse four. It's the word of God that informs David about who God is, his revealed word to him. For sure, David had uh, the early scriptures, Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, knew of the stories of God, and he is finding rest in, in God's revealed word to him that, that is trustworthy and good. And he says, though foes have trampled upon me all day long, God ultimately is bigger. Um, God uh, is true and overrides what I feel. 
Hezekiah, uh, King Hezekiah, when he was getting ready to be attacked by the Assyrians, uh, he says this of the king that was attacking him. With his arm of flesh, meaning with his human power, this is what this king has. But with us is the Lord our God. God is bigger than this situation. And, and, And friends, in a lot of ways, we have something that David doesn't. We have 66 books in front of us of God's word, of his truth, about his character and his nature and his goodness and who he is before us. So we, in a sense, have even a greater vantage point of understanding the fullness and the character of God. I want you to look now at at verse eight. David goes on to say, you have taken account of my wanderings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. And this is crucial. Number five, David believes that God is both sovereign and good. In the midst of this trial that he is in, he says, God, you have taken apart or you've taken account of my wanderings. You know every step of my path. You know where I've been, you know where I am, and you know where I am going. And not only that, but you know exactly how I feel in the midst of it. You've put my tears in a bottle. He says, are they not in your book? The idea being, God, you have recorded everything that I've done. You know by heart my actions, my my sufferings, the difficulties that I'm in. You know me. He says, though you haven't resolved my situation yet, I'm trusting that you were able to do so. You You are sovereign over all of this. He says, my enemies will turn their back in the day when I call. Now, this isn't like a prescription of God being a genie that David will say the right words and then magically David will have God deal with his enemies before him. But it's a belief from David that God can and one day God will when he is ready. We call that idea sovereignty. But David doesn't just end there. He says, notice this, this I know that God is for me. Not only is God sovereign, but David says, you're good. You are for me. You are walking me through this. You care about me. And though this doesn't feel good right now, uh, I don't want to be here. Nothing in me enjoys this situation. God, I know that you and I are on the same team. You are leading me through this, and you care about where I am, even in this most difficult of, of, of moments. You're not just sovereign, God, but you're good. Now, here's the reality that I know, and I know it about you because I know it about me. Most people either, uh, we, we tend to push on one of two things when we're walking in situations like this. We either question God's sovereignty or we question his goodness. We either say, God, um, I know you would love to do something about this situation, but you simply can't. You are not able to. You lack the power. You lack the ability uh, to step in and intervene in my life. So, this friend that has cancer, this, this person that's dying, this, this financial situation that's a wreck, God, you would love to step into that. You have the heart to do it, but you're kind of like Santa Claus. You're all warm and fuzzy, but you don't have any actual power to do anything. Or we say it the other way, and we say, Lord, you're, 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 you're sovereign, but we, we, we question then your, your goodness. You, you can do it, but you actually just don't care. You're, you're able to do these things. You're able to inter- intervene in my life. You're able to do those things, but you actually aren't good. You don't care enough about me to intervene in these moments in my life. And those are the two things that most of us tend to, to struggle with in the midst of, of these difficult times that we're in. And what David is affirming is that both are true. God, you are sovereign. You are able. You can, you could, in a, in a, in a snap of your fingers, resolve the situation for me. And you want to. You care about me. 
because I love you and I trust you. I put my faith in you. You are good and you are sovereign simultaneously. I'm reminded of how Jesus says this in the book of Matthew. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. God is sovereign over even the smallest things in life like a sparrow. And he knows the very hairs on each one of our heads. And David believes this. God cares and God's capable. And then lastly, number six. David's future hope is built on God's past faithfulness. Look at these two last verses, verses 12 and 13. He says, your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, even my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. David says, in the midst of this, I am choosing to give you thanks. I'm going to commit vows to you, which is either like a, a promise made during a uh, a time of difficulty and a thank offering that would have come with it, maybe a, a literal offering of, of something that you would give, or a sacrifice, or maybe even a, a song that David is choosing to sing, uh, saying, God, I'm going to choose to have this perspective in the midst of, of this time that I am in. Uh, Psalm 26 says that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all of your wonders. This is David's perspective in the midst of this. Uh, David seems to imply that this is his heart and what he wants to do. Verse 13, it says that you have delivered my soul from death. Now, I want you to notice, it, it makes it sound like David is out of this situation, but what I think David is saying here isn't he's delivered him in this current situation. He's saying, God, you've delivered me out of past situations. You have, you have been faithful every day in my past, and because I know what you have done then, I can now look in the future and trust your nature and trust your character. And it's based on that past faithfulness in, in my life that I can trust you, not on the other side of this storm, but while I am in it, while I am in the eye of the hurricane, while I'm in the midst of the earth shaking around me, God, I can, I can trust you because I know who you are. So David looks again to God's past faithfulness to guide his future. You've been faithful and you will continue to be faithful. So these six things that David shows us in suffering, I think are a, a gift in so many ways. He turns to God, David acknowledges how hard it is, but he trusts God in the light of that fear. He puts a confidence in God's word. He believes that God is both sovereign and good, and he looks to God's past faithfulness to guide his future decisions. Now, friends, I don't know where you are right now. I don't know where you are on the realm of suffering, whether you're in something like this right now, uh, whether you've been through that, or maybe that's on the horizon. And I don't know if you were to grade that out, whether that's a, a level one or, or maybe even a, a level 10. That ultimately isn't the point. But some of you are literally in the eye of the hurricane right now. Uh, and what God, I think, is asking of us is similar to what David has modeled for us. Will we trust in the midst of the storm that we're in? Will we believe that God is near to us? Will we allow him to be sovereign and good in the midst of our pain? Will we allow him to walk us through that season? Even if God doesn't fix our circumstances when and how we want him to, will we allow him to be God in our lives and trust that his nature and his character is good? Friends, this is the lesson that I am walking through right now. This is the thing that I am trying to convince uh, my heart of, though my head knows it's true, but I struggle with it in my heart. When there are things going on around me that I don't like, 
that I can trust the nature and character of the God that I serve, uh, that he's for me, and that he's walking me through this. And as painful as things may be uh, in my life and whatever's going on, that I can trust him. So maybe you're in a similar place. And I would remind us all that ultimately, because of the the beauty that we have, that we can now look back in a a way that David couldn't, as we look back to our Savior, remind all of us as we finish tonight, uh, of Jesus, who knows exactly where we are at, and knows exactly what it's like to walk uh, in our shoes, to feel anxiety, to feel um, pain, to feel all of the things that come with seasons like this. I want to finish here with just the the book of Hebrews, it just describes this scene for us. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Father, as difficult as seasons like this are in our lives, and as much as we would like to run from them if it was up to us, Lord, we understand that seasons like this are purposeful, and they're hard, but God, what you promise is to be with us in the midst of it. And you are a God who is sovereign over all of these things, and Father, you are for us. Father, would you help me? Would you help us as as fickle followers at times to remember that? Father, when when our faith wavers, when our trust is maybe in the wrong things, would you continue to remind us that you are a good God who loves us, who cares for us, and like a good father, wants what is best for us. And though that doesn't always feel best, God, we trust you in the midst of this. So Father, I pray for our body, whatever they're going through, for the trials, the difficulties, the, the seasons of suffering that they may find themselves in. Father, would we look to our Savior who endured much, that we could have a relationship again with you. Father, that, that willingly went to the cross, even in the midst uh, of the dread that he felt in his soul and his humanity. He trusted you enough to know that your plan was best uh, and walk with you even in the midst of those difficulties. Father, thank you ultimately for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.